0: And um, I'm going to start to tell you a little bit about my Dharma story and my a few of my teachers and the impact that they've had on my practice and on my life. So um, I first met the Dharma in 1982, almost 30 years ago now. I was a um, student at San Francisco State University, and I graduated from college in 1979, I think. And I had been really involved with the... American Indian Movement and Civil Rights Movement on the campus, and I thought after I graduated, you know, I was a first-generation college student, and I thought, well, I'm going to do what all the white kids do. I'm going to go to Europe after I graduate from college. So I decided to do that, but of course I didn't have any money, (laughs) so I bought a one-way ticket to Europe. And... uh, I got a job over there. I was very lucky I found a wonderful, actually place where a lot of expatriates lived in Germany. It was a little German resort. And um, I lived there, and a lot of the people there were going overland to India. All of these people were going overland to India because that was really the, the um, quest back in the day. And um, I, you know, missed going overland by a year because the Ayatollah Khomeini came into um, Iran. So rather than going overland, I actually flew over. But um, I had been in Europe for about three or four years when I landed in, I landed in India, in um, New Delhi, and then flew up, to, flew, up, flew up to Kathmandu. And one of my um, expatriate friends in um, Germany had said, the best way to um, go to Asia is to start off in a monastery so you can get really acc- acclimated to, to Asia. So I ended up going to a wonderful um, monastery right outside of Kathmandu, Nepal, actually where Thutton, um, Lama Thutton yeshi was the, was the abbot and his um, student or his protege, uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche. And I'm sure many of you probably know of those wonderful Tibetan teachers. And so um, I, you know, checked myself into the monastery and it was so wonderful because here I had done, you know, hung out with a lot of Indians, American Indians, and I saw all of a sudden all these Tibetans. (laughs) And, you know, they were there with the turquoise and the coral and the braids. I really thought I had come home. It was really wonderful to be with Tibetans after being in Europe for three or four years. So, um, and they were really excited to see me. They couldn't believe I was an American. So um, what they would do is they would dress me up in a chuba, which is a, a, a um, Tibetan dress, and then they would take me around to all their friends and say, OK, say something. <laughs> and they would say, can you believe she's an American? So that was, um, it was a delight for both of us that we discovered each other. It was a wonderful time. So anyway, I um, started this November course. I actually entered the November course of Kopan Monastery, that's right outside of um, Kathmandu, with these two wonderful lamas. It was a, you know, a a um, place where they um, taught, you know, young young Tibetan boys how to read and write and the Dharma. And so I started this November course, and you know, I didn't know anything about Buddhism and. You know, I had been raised a Catholic and I wasn't really sure, you know, I, I, I heard it, you know, and I thought it was really great, but I wasn't, you know, into, I hasn't, wasn't really totally convinced yet. I still had a little bit of doubt about the Dharma. And so, you know, we, I had been there maybe two weeks and Lama Zopa said to all of us during one of the teachings, and I swear he looked directly at me when he said this, but, you know, you never know. <laughs> he said sometimes you can have a realization of em- emptiness during a dream and then he just went off and you know talked again and of course you know what happened that night i went to bed and i had a really deep understanding of emptiness through a dream um you know when i had left um garmisch-partenkirchen in germany you know i had left behind a boyfriend and a lot of a lot of um pseudo-family or instant family. And I had this dream that all of the sadness and loneliness I was feeling from not being with my family and my boyfriend was totally internal to myself and had absolutely nothing to do with the situation. I really understood that there's nothing inherent in any situation that determines how you're going to feel about it. That's all a result of what we bring to it. Our sankaras, our habitual way of thinking of things, our habitual attachments. And I had a really deep understanding of that. And of course, I woke up the next day and just had a huge amount of faith. And I hadn't, you know, um, Tibetan Buddhism is so beautiful, they have the wonderful bowing. And I hadn't bowed yet in that whole hall. You know, There was a hundred people in this beautiful gompa, And I was one of the very few who hadn't bowed. I was on the floor that next morning. (laughs) And it was a wonderful experience just to bow, too, because all of a sudden, all of my, you know, a huge amount of ego and selfing that I didn't even know was there was just thrown in my face. So I really do think that sometimes these ritual forms can be really useful. Not so much as you know, uh, a um, rote way of honoring, but really to come to understand something about our relationship and ourselves. So that was one wonderful um, experience I had. And then I'll tell you about another teacher who I adore, who's one of my root teachers, and I had the exact opposite experience. So um, after I um, was in Asia for about a year and Um, I came back to the United States and tried to get into the Tibetan Buddhist um, scene here in the United States, but it really had, didn't really have a place for me. It was mainly, you know, I'm gonna be honest, it was mainly, you know, European Americans and the only people of color who hung out there were the one or two teachers that came over. And I don't know if everybody there had money but I didn't have any money in their, at that time in 19 you know the 80s they didn't have a lot of scholarships so <laughs> I wasn't able to attend a lot of the retreats so I practiced on my own you know every vacation I ever took was always about meditating I would find cheap retreats or would just figure out a way to spend my um, vacation in intensive practice cuz I really loved it So one year, um, I found my way to Vallecitos Mountain Refuge. I'm sure some of you here know it. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful, um, you know, wilderness ranch. You can't get a cell phone signal, which is really great. And I, I attended a people of color retreat, which was really wonderful. They had only about, probably about 20 or 25 yogis, and it was taught every year by Joseph Goldstein, if you can imagine. Joseph Goldstein and 20 yogis. It was just, it was really nice. (laughs) So, um, and I had, of course, knew who Joseph was. I actually had even seen him when I was in India. I was sitting at a retreat that he sat, and I said, oh my gosh, there's Joseph Goldstein. And so um, I was so excited to be sitting with him and to have him as a teacher. <laughs> you know where this is going or what? <laughs> so anyway, I um, my first interview with him. You know, I was so excited, and I had come out of the Tibetan tradition. And um, you know, we sat down. You know, sat down and told him how, how I was doing and everything. And at the end of the at the end of the um, interview with him, I said. And, you know, I was used to the Tibetan tradition of guru uh, devotion. So I said, oh, Joseph, you know, I just adore you. I'm sure you have an intuitive sense of what I should be doing, so just tell me what to do. (laughs) And Joseph said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddhist problem, now you solve yours. Which was the exact opposite of what Lama Tuttanyashi had done. But they were both absolutely perfect teachings for me at different times of my life. So um, those are my two stories that I wanted to share with you. And um, I really, you know, I was talking the other night about my excessive faith. And my excessive faith... I have to say I'm, I'm, I understand it more as just a huge amount of confidence in the Dharma. I have no doubt that the only way that i 'm going to solve any of my problems is really through the Dharma and through um, through awakening wisdom so that 's where my where my big confidence and my big faith is and Just a few days ago, um, Christopher Titmus posted. This message that he got from a friend of his. A friend of his is a Buddhist scholar, uh, a Sutta scholar, and had been looking through the suttas for descriptions of the life of the Buddha. What was the Buddha's life really like? What was he like as a person? You know, he's our ultimate teacher, right? He's our root teacher, the Buddha. So, um, this guy named Stephen Karpik. Uh, wrote this email to Christopher Titmuss and telling him about what the real life of the real uh, Gautama Buddha was like, and this is what he said. Um, Steph- Stefan wrote to Christopher Titmus and said, "I want. I have a sense of a person who had backaches and wanted Ananda to Ananda to teach for him. Made a teaching mistake on the foulness of the body, causing his monks to commit suicide." Could not be bothered with fract- fractious monks, was a great walker, loved hanging out in nature, was a superb debater, had a brilliant sense of humor, was about the earliest satirist, didn't want the bother of teaching, and then overreached himself by trying to impress the first person he saw after enlightenment, and he failed. Survived a mafia style hit organized by his cousin, was consulted by kings and politicians and mediated in war, and was expected to be a psychotherapist, community leader, as well as a spiritual teacher. So that was our beloved root teacher who was not a holier than thou type of teacher.
1: can see how organized we are. <laughs> in a way, when I listen to you, Bonnie, um, another language for what, at least what I hear, or, or a language for what I hear um, in the stories and the teachers that you spoke of, is empowerment. That something in this mysterious process of teacher, student, and both in Dharma and in other ways, um, yes, it can be teaching or talking about or demonstrating. But in in its most fundamental uh, movement, it is an empowerment of someone else to find their own understanding, like yours, not identical, but but in that same terrain. Um, and over the course of these weeks, as we've talked about the factors of enlightenment and the spiritual faculties and the Brahma-viharas, when you first read them, their lists, you know, the Buddha was a list maker, along with backaches and having to teach for him and so forth. Um, and they seem like good, you know, psychological lists, descriptions. But in fact as you've practiced, and I've seen it in the people that I've talked to, um, you begin to inhabit and feel and experience and become empowered in yourself to know, oh, this is calm, this is faith, this is concentration, this is equanimity, this is compassion. And these qualities um, grow in you. And this becomes the environment, the holding environment, for them to awaken in you. Ajahn Chah. I'll tell a couple of stories or a few stories from being with him. Always wanted to put it back on others. He had a lot of people imagining great things about him. And when I was first studying with him, I would watch him really closely. Like, okay, is this guy's enlightened? How is he behaving? Right? And he would sit there and. Wipe his nose with his robe sometime, and I go that doesn't look so enlightened or pick and, and and then I think, was he being mindful when he did that? Is he mindful all the time? you know because I was very young and kind of mindful all the time must be what enlightenment is, you know or he Pick at his toes or he'd 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 you know say something offhand, and then one day I was asking for some teachings from him, and he he told me some things, and a while later he told me something else that was completely different and inconsistent, and I got really frustrated, and I came to him because I was frustrated, and you told me to do this, but then you told me to do that, and I don't know what to do you know and i said um i've been watching, and you just I have to say it. You don't seem that enlightened to me. <laughs> and he, like you, he just laughed. He thought that was a great thing. I mean, I think I was the only Westerner there at that time. Maybe it was maybe Sumedho had come back. You know, so I was a source of amusement for him anyway. Right? I mean, weird, weird white guy with ears that stuck out a lot, and you know, a very big nose. You know, compared to the people. Oh my god, should I tell that story? No. I'll I'll I'll, I'll see. Am I might. <laughs> just trying to find out if this is right speech or not. All right, I'll go on. Um, anyway, so he was really inconsistent and I said, I, I you know, I'm looking for how to behave and how to act and what enlightenment looks like. And you don't seem so enlightened to me in certain moments anyway." And he said, Great. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean great? You know, I was really frustrated. I was ready to leave. What do you mean that's good? He said, well, because if I fit your model, your idea, your ideal of enlightenment, you would actually think that it could be found out here. And it can't be. It's not out here. Which is to say it's also not a matter of imitation. Nobody's ever been like you before. And so he, he went further. Um, he said, as far as inconsistency goes, he said, there's a path that I know well and I see other people walking down it and sometimes they're about to fall on the ditch on the right-hand side and I shout out, hey, go to the left. You know. And then that person wanders around for a while and they're about to fall off in the ditch and go some little sidetrack on the left and I yell, hey, go to the right. He said, that's all I do in my teaching. I point them back to where they are not where they're wandering to in some way. It's, it's not about consistency. It's about coming to be in the reality of your own experience in the present. So he, he constantly both pointed us back to our own experience, and there's a way in which he demonstrated in, 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 in a way, his, his wisdom was very simple. Um, he'd come up to people, especially if you were having a hard time, he'd say, are you suffering? And either you'd say no, and he'd say, great, I hope you enjoy the day, right? Or you'd say yes, and he'd say, oh, must be attached, and kind of smile and walk (laughs) off. And he didn't see it, it wasn't like judgment that it was a bad thing or a good thing or something, he was just, that's how it is, you know? If you're suffering, you must be attached, and he'd smile, and he he was obviously in a different place, you know? (laughs) So, anyway, there was a nun, a Westerner, who came to practice with Ajahn Chah. Um, and she was quite charismatic. She was one of the first Western women to become a, a Thai style nun in the forest monastery that he'd made, that they'd created for Westerners. And she was there for about five years. And a number of other women had come to practice there as well, but she was the most charismatic of them and the most senior. And then, um, One day she said, I'm leaving, and she just left. And about a year later, she came back. It turned out she'd thrown away her robes, and she had um, found a church, a fundamentalist church, and she'd become a born-again Christian with a great kind of fundamentalist vision, and she'd found Jesus in a very important way for herself. (laughs) She came back, and she stayed at the monastery, and she was trying to convert everybody, and saying, you know, you're on the wrong path, and um, it's okay, this Buddhist stuff is all right, but Jesus is the is the way, you know. And she was very charismatic and very adamant, as fundamentalists of any kind can be. And people were getting really upset that she's here, and she comes to visit when she doesn't stay here, and she's, to, you know, and what do we do about this? And, and both the Westerners and the villagers, who she knew, and she spoke, you know, the local language, and... Um, they were just really upset what do we do this woman she was a, our, our heroine We, you know this great nun and now she's telling us that Jesus is the way and, and they were so upset they all marched it was about a ten mile walk through the jungle as a group over to the main monastery to see Ajahn Chah and um, sat down and told the story and he knew she'd come back but you know she's proselytizing and so forth and you know What do we do about this? And he looked, he sat for a minute, he looked at him, and he said, Well, maybe she's right. (laughs) And that's all he said. And, uh, (laughs) And they went back, you know, that was his reply. And it was so beautiful because we get so caught in the views that we have. About the way things are supposed to be, and he his teaching was about the wisdom of not knowing, the wisdom of I describe the wisdom of insecurity. It was the wisdom of not clinging, not clinging to views. You know, and everybody had oh, she's threatening our views. Maybe she's right. It just you could feel in it the the spaciousness, and he just offered that to everyone else. You know, you could put it down. It was really beautiful. I mean, I remember when I was quite sick as a monk in my little hut, I got malaria um, in the jungle, in the forest, and I got wretchedly sick, and I was sort of lying on the floor of my little hut, a lot of fever, and Ajahn Chah came to visit me. And the Lao language is a very kind of simple farmer language, mostly very... The sentences are short, and... It's kind of straightforward. Culturally, it's a beautiful language. And he said, "Um, Benkai, uh, which means got a fever? I said, yeah. He said, sick, huh? I said, yeah. He said, hurts a lot, huh? I said, yeah. He said, scary? I said, "Uh uh-huh. He said, makes you want to go home to your mother, doesn't it? I said, yes. (laughs) He said, and then he looked at me, he said, this is suffering. This is suffering. And, and, and he just looked at me, this is suffering, he just named it. And he said, you know, we've all had it. We've all suffered like this. We all had malaria, and there's, there's better medicine than we did now. And he arranged for me to get medicine, but it took a couple of days for it to work. He said, and that's fine, you know. You live in the jungle, you get malaria, you get your medicine. This is suffering, this is the way that it is, um... And there was a certain way in which, when he talked about it, uh, that I felt that he had just been there as I had, um, and that he knew that I would be all right. He didn't even say, you're going to be all right. He just said, yeah, this is it, isn't it? You know, that he had lived through it. And there is a kind of empowerment, simply by his steadiness and his presence, um, that yes, anything can happen, and the dharma that we practice can hold uh, can hold it all
2: So many stories to tell, <coughs> and I want to just first make sure you can hear me in back. Okay, thank you. And uh, Bonnie, starting out with her first retreat, made me remember a story from my first retreat. It was a Zen retreat with my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sunim. And it was a three-day session, which was... Um, you know, my first time, and very intense to sit and walk constantly like that, and uh, I think it was the second day, I can't remember if it was the second morning or the third, but I woke up, and this was, um, at the Zen Center at that time, there wasn't room for all of us to sleep over, and I lived really close by, so I just ride my bicycle and sleep at home at night, and then go back at, you know, four in the morning to start, with our hundred and eight prostrations, and then the day of practice, so I actually woke up at home, and uh, I was looking in the mirror in the bathroom, and I was kind of groggy, and I looked in the mirror, and I saw this blackened corpse face, and I was comp- terrified actually, and it it uh, I stopped looking in the mirror, and um, and I was. I just couldn't, you know, just that expression we had then, it blew my mind. And I went, I was really eager to speak to him. We had a meeting each day and I went in for my meeting and you did your three prostrations and then you sit down and just like blurting, you know, look, this is what happened. I woke up in the morning, I looked in the mirror and I saw it and it, I looked like a corpse and it was really scary and what does this mean? And he just burst out laughing, which was a little bit not the, exp- you know, the response I had expected. I felt uh, puzzled and perhaps slightly that he hadn't gotten it, how important and serious this was. And then he took his stick, he had a Zen teaching stick, and he just tapped me on the thigh, not, not hard he just tapped me on the thigh and he just laughed and said, you're already a corpse. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, okay. Um, So what he meant by that, (laughs) you could take it any way you want to because those teaching moments What I received in that moment was a two-sided teaching. One that by sitting and getting so caught up in my mind and this story and describing the experience, I wasn't even with him. I wasn't present at all with him in that moment. So that was not an alive moment together. I was just... And... The other thing I understood was he was also laughing because, yes, this is the way it is, just by virtue of having this body. That's where it's headed. And I had had a glimpse of that. Um, And then the next story that I wanted to share with you was another story, but very different, around... uh, the end of life. My teacher Maureen Stewart Roshi was my really my heart teacher. That when I found her, met her in 1979. I just practiced with her until she died in 1990. And this story happened toward the end of her life. She was really she was really sick at that point, and um, my then husband and I had gone over to help her, you know, make dinner and help her clean up. She was still at home, help her clean up her apartment. And um, and so she was resting. It was this sort of multi-level um, townhouse apartment that she had, which you could always tell when you looked into, there were about three buildings. She had purple blinds. So you could always tell which one was hers by the purple blinds. And so she <coughs> was resting on one of the levels just slightly upstairs from where I was straightening up magazines on a table. She loved to cook, and she had this big pile of gourmet magazines. And so uh, I was straightening up the magazines, and I really wanted to ask her. I knew this was coming to the end of her life, and I really wanted to ask her, well, actually about her enlightenment. What did she have? I was so curious, what was she feeling at this time herself because she was very strong and pretty equanimous and you know you couldn't really tell Um, and I felt very close to her we were like family in the way that you are when you do a lot of practice like this together you're in silence and you're at least for the time of a retreat you're living together and eating together and going through so much so much together and um, and so and my mind was very simple and trusting in the context of her uh, and i so I felt like I just really had to know after all her years of zazen what what was it like what would be I guess it was a little bit like Bonnie's question to Joseph, but I wasn't so much asking her to tell me personally what to do, so much as what is, uh, what is your wisdom at this time in, in your life? And it's a little bit scary to ask your spiritual teacher about the nature of her enlightenment um, toward, you know, the end of her life. But as I said, my, I felt very at ease with her. So I, it was just like being, you know, I called upstairs to her. And asked her, you know, how is it for you right now? What would you say to me from this place where you are right now? And what she said was not, it was not all what I expected to hear. She said, without hesitating, just three words. She said, live it up. Live it up. If any of you, well, you are doing, you know, you're doing really intensive practice, sitting and walking and lots of renunciation and lots of going through difficult things and sitting through pain. And this was, we did this too. And this was what she taught us how to do. So I didn't really expect that answer, which to me had a kind of we, you know, live it up quality. I came to understand it. As just live fully, live fully, live each moment to the hilt that that's what she was saying. But she was also saying, live it up, Um, live it up. There's a little more, but I think I'm going to save that little more about this for my talk on Tuesday. But um, the last story, no, maybe two more. Just quick ones. Um, these are stories about trusting yourself. And one of them is from uh, Upandita, Saida Upandita, a great Burmese meditation master that I sat with about, <laughs> I'm not sure, maybe eight years ago. And it was the opening of the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, the long-term retreat center, and... First they had a retreat for teachers, and I sat that, and then they had a one-month retreat with Upandita. And I went in with some trepidation because he had this reputation for being such a fierce teacher, and I had been practicing a lot already before I went in for the meeting. And I reported to him, you're just really supposed to report about the rise and fall of the breath and what you've noticed about that. And you don't get to say anything about your feelings or, you know, anything like that. It's just, you know, reporting (laughs) what you've learned from the rise and fall of the breath. So I reported what I had learned at that point from the rise and fall of the breath. And then I had, you know, just that wobble, that moment of doubt. And I sort of, after I said it, I kind of looked to him and... Was asking, is that enough? Or uh, there was just this uh, uncertainty. And he looked at me and said, Why do you keep looking under the object, meaning the rise and fall of the breath, when you've already seen its true nature? that it rises and falls and appears and disappears, and one breath is replaced by another, and so it's, it's, it's the things that we learn. And it was amazing because he summed up in that one question kind of my whole life of self-doubt in the Dharma. <laughs> you know, why are you searching under something that you've already seen? So that was a very powerful and... Um, encouraged. It was kind of all downhill from there in some ways um, with with him and me, but I, I did make him laugh once, which if you've ever sat with him, you know this is highly unusual, to the point where his other side were all talking about it. You made him laugh. <laughs> um, I know, now I have to tell you what made him laugh. Okay, so I will. I wasn't, I will. <laughs> uh, They were so, you know, I didn't know that it was that unusual that everybody would be talking about it, um, that he would, you know, crack a smile. But what we had to do was, you know, make this report. Each time we went in, and you were supposed to report what you had seen, you know, quite clearly and hopefully. And so I went in, I think it was the third time or something for my report, and I reported what I had seen to him and uh, i reported some several things i had seen and and it was kind of like autumn cha he sort of looked at me quizzically like aren't you suffering or isn't you know and i and i said to him i just sort of blurted out listen i'm obviously choosing the absolutely best experiences that i have to tell you about <laughs> and I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, were you going to go report your schleppy, mindless moment of wishing you could have dinner? And I mean, you know, no. You're going to tell him? Anyway, so... Um, that made him laugh. And he said, that was very honest. Which kind of makes you wonder, what is everybody else telling him, right? But... And actually, in that tradition, you can hear um, the way it's set up is you can hear the person who comes, you know, who's meeting. Anyway, it's not so helpful to hear people's meetings. You might think, you know, when you're sitting out there waiting for your meeting, kind of craning, can I catch a little bit of wisdom? Um, It's actually not so helpful to hear other people's meetings, especially if the person who goes before you has a lot more experience than you've had. with that tradition. Uh, And the last story is just a very simple story of my teacher, Kobun Chino Roshi. And he didn't really call himself Roshi. He called himself Kobun Chino Otagawa. Otagawa was his family name and Chino was um, his master's name. And this was also the first retreat that I sat with Kobun. It was a week, seven-day sashin. And you got one meeting with the teacher during the week. And um, he asked me a question when I came in. He said, what are you going to do when the last teacher is dead and there are none left? Who are you going to learn from then? And I reflected for a second. I just thought, I thought this is such a great And I said, I'm going to learn from everything. Everything will be my teacher at that point. And by the way, that's a very easy thing to say. (laughs) It's really not so easy to live like that. But I said, everything will be my teacher. And he said, no, no. You will be. You yourself will be your teacher. So that's the theme, uh, really, I think from the thread that runs through our stories is that theme of trust yourself, trust your experience, and work with the part of you that's looking for the enlightened teacher out there or the perfect, you know, you can see into my heart, you know me better than I do, tell me what is the best thing for me to do. We kind of long for somebody like that who would train us and know us, know exactly. It's kind of like the perfect parent, if you think about it. But don't, because uh, it's not, there isn't such a thing. You know, our emotional needs will never have all been met by our parents. And um, once you've become a parent, you have more merciful attitude. Toward their parenting crimes, hopefully as well as your own, but you know the the take home teaching is that uh, somehow sitting up straight in the midst of this imperfect life, imperfect self uh, imperfect, perfect present moment. Um, that we learn to trust the Dharma as it unfolds in our own being and how absolutely unmistakable that is. Um, That whatever happens is not a mistake. I think that's a good stopping place. Um, So we agreed that we would turn back to each other but actually, do you want to add
0: Bonnie? (coughs) Well, (coughs) I wanted to add one other little story. I'm going to try to tell it quickly. In addition to this wonderful practice that I have a lot of confidence and faith in, I also was so lucky to actually um, do the Lakota Sundance for like six years. And um, during that, you know, I had actually come to the Sundance after I had done a lot of intensive. Tervon in practice. So I, you know, the first year I started, I said, okay, I'm going to do dancing meditation and I'm going to be mindful the whole time. And as soon as I got into the arbor, actually, even before I got into the arbor, I tried to do walking meditation and that ceremony refused to be anything else but for what it was. It did not allow me to do anything besides be present for the Sundance the way people experience that ceremony and get purified and get sanctified by it. And so I guess my point is that the same is true with the ceremony we're doing here. That, you know, if you can give yourself over to this practice, it'll take you where you're supposed to go. So that's my two cents about that.
1: And maybe I'll add one more little story. Um, All of these are empowerment, um, really expressing how you carry the Dharma, um, that the Dharma is within you. Um, So some years ago when the Dalai Lama was here, sitting right where Bonnie is, <laughs> looking, looking happy as she does. Um, we had a big meeting of Buddhist teachers from around the West for a number of days. Um, and because the Dalai Lama is a head of state, even though it's in exile and such a significant figure, um, when he comes to the U.S., he gets a Secret Service detail to protect him, um, and they sent a lot of Secret Service. There was, I don't know, forty Secret Service here or something like that, um, and they were having a good time. Mostly, there are these like buff young guys and young women who are they're they're very agile and attentive and, and whatever. And a bunch of them, when they first came, they said, so where can we rent horses around here? They decided they were going to guard the Dalai Lama by riding horses all around. there They were, they were having a good time, right? You know, and the pe- watching people come in and out. of this. so they, But they were doing their job. Um, and uh, then they would escort him to this big house nearby where he stayed and come back here, and he stayed here some of he stayed there and so forth. And when the end, when the when the event ended after a number of days and the Dalai Lama was about to um, go off to the next teaching that he had to do, and we also had a whole uh, group of four or five hundred Tibetans from the Bay Area come and be with the Dalai Lama here. It was very beautiful. Anyway, before he left, um, the head secret service woman um, and some of the other kind of team leaders asked the Dalai Lama if they could have their picture taken with him. Um, and, of course, he's always amenable to that. You know, oh, don't you want to take my picture? Come on here. You know, and he'll hold their hands and everybody. And so here there were, you know, like 30, 40 of them all. Um, and I was there, and I started to talk to a couple of the ones who'd been doing this for a long time, and they said, you know, um, he's different. I said, what do you mean he's different? They said, we have guarded prime ministers and queens and kings and, you know, presidents and so forth, Um, you know, all these people that are considered the most special personages, dignitaries to visit America, but the Dalai Lama's different. And I said, how is he different? And they were all smiling, grinning, being with him. They said, because he treats us as if we're special. And that's the difference, you know. And then you saw him like holding hands with different ones and getting their picture. They take their, their little phone out. And, oh, I want my picture with holding hands with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> that he, he treats us as if we're special. And it was such a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, prime ministers, kings, whatever, queens. But this is different. And this is the empowerment that is given from the Dharma to each person because you are special. You are the Buddha in your own unique... Beautiful, magnificent, troubled. What did that Bonnie read? <laughs> you got your back aches like the Buddha, and some people around that are difficult as he did. Um, but you awaken these qualities, and you awaken to your own Buddha nature, and that's really the um, the blessing of what we do together. Anything more? Let's just sit for a minute.